Uh, scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 6, 10 through uh, 18. It's also printed on page 8 of your bulletin. If you can turn there with me, I'll read that for us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, uh, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind... Be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Amen. Good morning. My name is uh, Justin. Welcome to Metro. Um, If you uh, haven't been here for the past few weeks, we've been going through a series on uh, the armor of God as depicted, the full armor of God as depicted over there. Um, And uh, this series is actually ending our larger sermon series on the book of Ephesians, which we started at the beginning of the year, so we're finally, finally coming down uh, to the wire here. Um, So as you can see, the whole armor of God, uh, and in the sermon series, we're going to be breaking down each piece of the armor, Um, but I do want you to understand that we're not here to pick and choose which armor to put on. Rather, Paul calls us to put on the whole armor of God. You're not going to go into battle with just a helmet and nothing else. That would not be smart. You're going to go with the entire, the full armor of God. And the whole armor, its purpose is for us to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the purpose of this full armor. And today we're going to be focusing on the breastplate of righteousness. We're really going to be zoning in on this. And I have three points for us uh, to maneuver through the sermon. Very simple. What it is, what it does, and how to get it. What it is, what it does and how to get it, the breastplate of righteousness. So first, what it is, the breastplate of righteousness. What is a breastplate, first of all? It's not a term that we use nowadays. Along with all the other parts of the armor, the breastplate is used for three things. It protected, it represented, and it signified. It protected. It protected the vitals of your body, your your heart, your lungs, your stomach. And this armor, this uh, breastplate, was uh, often made out of iron or steel, and it protected you from the neck down to your thighs. And it covered both the front and the back, because you never know when an arrow or a sword is going to come stabbing at you during battle. And you can probably imagine that it was very bulky and heavy. You can definitely maneuver a little easier without it on, but a soldier would never go into battle without one because it has the potential to save your life. The breastplate was the uh, modern-day bulletproof vest. And um, if I'm going into a gunfight, there is no way that I'm not going to be putting on a bulletproof vest, no matter how bulky it is. 
you don't really realize how important something like that is until either you're dead, which I guess is too late at that point, or you have a bullet that goes straight for you, but somehow, not somehow, the bulletproof vest saves your life. So that, that's one, it protected. Secondly, it represented. Uh, it was a representation of your country and the city that you fought for. Each uh, battling country had a distinct style of armor, and the breastplate was a very important piece of it. And depending on where you're from, it had the emblem engraved on it with the mark of the country. And when you wore that emblem, you represented that country or empire that you fought for. So as you approach a city, depending on what style of armor that you were wearing, you were either accepted as an ally or you were struck down and rejected as an enemy. That's two. It protected, it represented, and lastly, it signified. It signified. It's an outward sign of your status and rank within the army. Plain and simple. The higher the rank, the higher quality of material, and the more flourishes and fancy stuff uh, was engraved onto it. So those are the three things. Protected, it represented, it signified. So the breastplate was a very crucial, critical part of the armor. And in a sense, it was the centerpiece of the armor. So righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? And the meaning of righteousness in our modern society is not really used in a positive light. It's usually used in a negative light. It's used to describe someone who is arrogant or cocky. We use the word self-righteous. And if you're called self-righteous, it's not a good thing. However, in Scripture, it's the opposite. To be righteous means to be presentable and acceptable. Tim Keller uses this definition. Righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors. A validating performance record that opens doors. And although we don't use this term righteousness very often, the concept is actually very familiar to us. Society has many ways to determine if someone is righteous enough. And almost in every step of life, there's a measuring stick to see if you measure up or not. If you remember back to high school, your name becomes identified with a transcript that lists out all the classes that you've taken and all the grades uh, that you got in them, which, once you formulate it all together, pops out a grade point average, a GPA, a performance, a validating performance record that opens doors. And uh, when you've graduated high school, and if you decide to go to college, the university is determined from this transcript, uh, your extracurriculars and your SATs. Remember SATs? I hate SATs. Um, they determine if you're acceptable or righteous enough to either receive that big letter with an acceptance letter, that big envelope with an acceptance letter, or that itty-bitty tiny envelope with a rejection letter. I'm bringing back bad memories for some of us, especially me. Um, and, and then when you go to apply for a job, the first thing you need is a curriculum vitae or a resume, which is extremely important since it's the first thing that the employers see in making a decision about if you're acceptable or not. And we do our best to make it sound all professional and uh, relevant as possible. And you know, it's funny, uh, if a lot of you know that the pastors here at Metro, we're all bivocational, meaning that uh, we, along with being a pastor, we have full-time jobs outside of ministry. And uh, before, before joining Metro, 
I have never had a corporate job in my life. I served as a full-time pastor at another church, so if you showed my resume to a, uh, a corporate company, they'd be really confused at some of the things that might see. For example, usually when you have all the degrees that you've earned, right, you put it at the top. A master's degree or a doctorate's degree, it looks pretty cool. And if I was applying to a church position, yeah, absolutely, it'd probably be at the top. However, I wasn't applying for a church position. I was applying for a corporate job. So you can imagine that they would be initially impressed with a master's degree until they read what it's for. A master's of divinity. <laughs> that sounds like some Harry Potter stuff. They're probably like, is this guy a wizard? Does he think he's a wizard? Did he go to the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry? Yeah, I know that full name. So what do I do? I put it way at the bottom. I don't want them to see that. Under my temple degree, which I, go, go temple. I also had to change assistant pastor to assistant head of staff and operations. That sounds very fancy. And the point of all this is uh, this concept of righteousness, it's not foreign to us. We actually deal with it every single day. When you go to buy a house or a car, what do you rely on? You make sure to check your credit score before you do go. The higher the score, the more doors are open for you. Righteousness. On first or second dates, you do your best to hide some of the craziness that goes on in your head because you're trying to lure them in until they realize just how crazy you are. Essentially, the breastplate of righteousness is something outside of yourself that showcases to the world what you've accomplished, all that you've accomplished. So that's what it is. Second point, what it does. In the language of the New Testament, um, it was written in Greek, the word for righteousness is the same word used for justice and to justify. And the opposite of justice, righteousness, acceptance, presentability is shame guilt, and embarrassment. So if we all put it together, essentially the breastplate of righteousness protects the heart from shame and guilt. Again, the breastplate of righteousness protects the heart from shame and guilt. It hides shame and gives you a sense of belonging and acceptance and justification for your existence. And this feeling of shame, the reason why it's a breastplate is because the feeling of shame it attacks your heart. Often we say our heart feels heavy or burdened, and when something like this strikes, it almost paralyzes and immobilizes us because it cuts so deep into the very core of who you are. So in order to fight against the burden of shame, whether we realize it or not, all of us, we wear a breastplate of righteousness. However, it's the source of righteousness that differs from person to person. Even if we go back all the way in the beginning with Adam and Eve, after they ate of the fruit and disobeyed, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Why? Because they saw that they were naked and ashamed. And this is actually the first place in history that shame and guilt first entered into the world. They attempted to hide because they felt inadequate. 
They put together these inadequate garments and self-made breastplates of righteousness to cover up who they were, their shame, their righteousness. And as we said earlier, we put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And one of the great and powerful schemes of the evil one is getting to look at ourselves. To be so fixated on us rather than Christ. And this is what leads to shame and guilt. Because we're all broken people, all of us have insecurities. All of us have failures. In fact, those people that uh, you see, you talk to, walking around who want to present that they are the most secure, arrogant, cocky people, if you look at their lives, they're actually probably the most insecure out of all of us. We put up false personas. We become defensive. I want to ask, what is it that you're trying to cover over in your life? What insecurities are you working so hard to hide in your life? And what are you hoping would hide your shame and give you a sense of belonging, acceptance, justification for your existence? Harold Abrahams, a a Jewish Olympic track runner, uh, which was presented in the movie Chariots of Fire, he agonized over the thought that he had only 10 lonely seconds on that track when the gun goes off to justify his existence. He ran to prove himself to others and to defeat his enemies who wanted him to fail because he was Jewish. Abrahams wanted to hide his unacceptability And he believed a gold medal could be his righteousness to save him from that. Our beloved Rocky Balboa, in uh, the final fight of Rocky I against Apollo Creed, he says, I'm not going to try to say it in his voice, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, and that bell rings, and I'm still standing I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky believed that this fight would cover over his shame of just being yet another ordinary guy from the neighborhood. And some of you might be asking yourself, I'm not insecure about anything. But once again, ask yourself, or better yet, ask the people around you who really know you What do you get angry about? What do you really get defensive about in your life? If a coworker asks you or questions the quality of your work, how do you respond? If your parents or in-laws strongly recommend parenting your kids another way, how do you respond? If a friend embarrasses you in front of others, why do we get so angry? And if your spouse calls you out on how little you help with things, Why do you lose it? Or are you always shifting blame to other people? Think about it. Why would you get defensive at something you know that you're not very good at? You would gladly take suggestions, advice, constructive criticism because you know you you don't know very much about the topic or subject. But when it's something that you think that you're an expert in or you take pride in, you are very quick to snap back 
or dismiss whatever they're saying. Very arrogant. This is your righteousness. You think, I'm not very good at that, but at least I'm good at that. Or, I know I don't have that, but at least I have that. We live in an age of uh, social media where there will always be someone better looking, someone more talented, someone who works harder. And we're actually exposed to these people every single day as we scroll up and down our news feeds. So why do you think we're so inclined to post and document the great things in our lives? And if if you take a moment to really think deep down, it's because we're ashamed of being viewed as boring, without friends, unpopular, inadequate boyfriends, inadequate spouses or or parents. Human interaction has even gotten to the point where if someone does something really thoughtful for you and you don't post it for the whole world to see, they feel very unappreciated. If you really enjoyed what I did, you'd post it up on Instagram, but you're not. What the heck? I guess my food wasn't very good. It's like... We live in a world full of uh, superlatives. If your life isn't epic, if your life isn't legendary or unforgettable, your life becomes, well, forgettable. You know, one of the worst feelings is being in a lively room full of people and you have absolutely no one to talk to. It happens all the time. At work happy hours, at weddings, at social functions. It happens at church. So why do we feel so horrible? It's because you feel exposed, naked to the other people in the room, thinking that you're a loner, a loser, or worse, socially awkward. And we're inherently people who need to feel like we're accepted, unforgettable, significant, and that our life matters, but the schemes of the devil will keep coming, making you feel lonely, deficient, unqualified, useless. And some of us, we respond by working ourselves to the ground in order to have those feelings of inadequacy go away. We work harder, we work longer, while others, we fall to the ground in defeat and hopelessness. And when the things of this world doesn't satisfy, some people begin to turn to religious righteousness. Some uh, point out that this righteousness that Paul speaks of in our passage as the breastplate of righteousness isn't referring to something called objective righteousness, but subjective righteousness. Bear with me here. Objective righteousness refers to a term called justification, um, and it's Christ's work in making us right with God. Subjective righteousness, on the other hand, refers to moral righteousness, integrity of character or conduct, the way that you live your life and act. Of course, you need both. You absolutely need both of those things to work together. But if you just take this at face value, the breastplate of moral righteousness then becomes about how good you're living your life. And this is what protects you from the schemes of the devil. Unfortunately, if moral goodness is what you're banking on, which many people do, even subconsciously, 
you're just as hopeless and useless as everybody else. You're hoping to amass enough good deeds to act as a credit towards God. And if you start attending church, if you stop using profanity, if you're kind to your neighbors, you stop partying, you have your children learn what it means to be a good person, you'll have a record shows that I'm doing more than other people are. And this actually turns you into an arrogant, self-righteous person. You look at other people and how they live their lives and you say, I would never do something like that. I would never live my life like that. In Scripture, the Pharisees were a perfect example of this. And although they were morally good, morally righteous, they still relied on their own ability. This is actually the scheme of the devil. And I would not be surprised if many of us here in this room struggle with that. Jesus, Jesus calls these Pharisees hypocrites. And what happens when you mess up? Not if, you're going to mess up. What happens when you mess up? And you make a mistake and, and people are there to watch you. Your breastplate slowly starts rusting and starts to have holes in it. So what do you do then? The only thing that you can do, you, can, you, you endlessly work up to keep this righteousness. You work hard. You work longer. But the question is, Will you have confidence that your righteousness is enough, whether it's religious or not? Things that you fall back on, will it always be there? And how much harder do you have to work to feel secure? You're just trying to get more and more and more of it. Is this armor that you're wearing going to withstand the perils of life? And you know, it only gets harder from here. So if it's already falling apart, you're hopeless. You need an armor that's going to last you as long as the war. Friends, the Bible tells us of a righteousness that will last the war. In fact, it'll last for all of eternity. One that will allow you to walk with your chest up high, not in arrogance, not in pride, but in humble confidence. And not a confidence that results in yourself feeling significant at the cost of others, but a confidence that makes others feel significant at your own cost. And a humility that allows you to care and put yourself out there for others, even at the cost of your own reputation. Where you'll no longer need to be dishonest, lie, cover up your inadequacies, shame, and weakness. You don't have to overwork yourself. You don't have to kill yourself just to keep up and have that righteousness stay nice and shiny. Doesn't it get tiring putting up a facade? Putting up with the web of, web of insecurities in your life that you're constantly trying to hide with other things? This righteousness, it allows you to become secure even in the midst of your weaknesses and failures to the point where you can boast about your weaknesses. It allows you to be honest with yourself because what other people, what other people think no longer bears any power over you because you are accepted by one who is greater. 
Friends, this breastplate of righteousness, that is what Paul talks about here, and it's called the breastplate of righteousness of Christ. And it gives us the power to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know, one of the great difficulties of the Christian life, which I think that all of us can uh, relate to, is the feeling of instability. Some days we feel like our Christian life, man, we're, we're doing great. Our faith tank is filled to the top and we're ready to take on whatever. But some days, you barely feel like a Christian at all. The righteousness of Christ that provides the only defense against this great trick in your life, the trick of getting lost in ourselves again, it, in our pride, in our weakness, in our faith, in our work, in our ability. But rather than looking at ourselves when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, of the righteousness of Christ, we look at the emblem up in the front of the cross and are reminded to look upwards to Christ that in our lowest moments of life, we don't ask ourselves, am I a Christian? Rather, we remind ourselves, why am I a Christian? How am I a Christian? And it's through the righteousness of Christ. This is what the breastplate of righteousness of Christ does. It gives you a humble confidence. What it is, what it does, and lastly, how to get it. In the days of Israel, outlined in the book of Exodus, long before Paul wrote about this breastplate of righteousness, God actually provided another breastplate. Except this one was called the breastplate of judgment. And only one righteous person had the ability to wear it, and it was the high priest. Who he, and he spent weeks and weeks cleansing himself before entering into the most holy place, which is the place where God himself came down to meet with him. And on this breastplate of judgment, there were 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. So when he would go before the Lord, he represented all the people of God, and he bore the judgment of the people on his heart. Fast forward, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And he was completely righteous. He was pleasing. He was acceptable to the Father. And we know that because he said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The acceptance of the Father, unlike us, was all sufficient for Christ. Yet on the cross, he bore the burden of wearing this breastplate of judgment as he received the wrath of God for the sins and judgment of all the people on his heart. On the cross, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, All that I've ever needed, all that was sufficient for me, the approval and acceptance of the Father was stripped from me. However, the armor of God, although the armor of God was completely stripped from him on the cross, he remained righteous. He remained faithful until his dying breath. He became our breastplate of righteousness. And this is the gospel. 
It shows us that to believe in the gospel is to transfer trust from self, from self, to Christ. The only, and only Christ can supply a perfect, lasting righteousness. So how do we get this righteousness? It's by realizing our inability to cultivate or provide a righteousness of our own, but trusting that Christ himself has become our righteousness. He says that our weakness, not our power, and not what we bring to God enables us to put on the breastplate of righteousness of Christ. And this provides us with an immense peace and rest from constantly working to keep up our own righteousness. Jesus Christ, what does he say? He says, come to me, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This means that when you're in that lively room full of people and you don't have anyone to talk to, you remember that you are secure in Christ's righteousness, and it doesn't matter what people think of you. So what do you do? You just keep standing there looking good, looking real good. That means that when you go into an expensive restaurant where people can clearly tell that you're way out of your league, you don't have to pretend to be rich. You just enjoy that perfectly seasoned steak, knowing that you're already rich in the righteousness of Christ. That means when you're at work or at school or even on a play day and you're surrounded by people who are more qualified, who have more degrees, who have more experience, who have more money, you don't have to feel inferior, shamed, or inadequate, thus working yourself to the ground, but you continue forward knowing that you are accepted, secured, and qualified to be right where you are because the one who loves you has called you to be there and to stand firm. All these things, these are all schemes of the devil to make you feel the need to cover over your inadequacies with other things that are inadequate. But when Paul calls us to put on the armor of God, he is telling us to put on Christ himself. And as we fit ourselves with this armor, our lives are literally hid with Christ. When you put on an armor, you no longer see that person, but you see the armor. That armor is Christ Jesus. Meaning that just as Christ was completely accepted, secure, and beloved, we too are unconditionally accepted, secure, and beloved. Meaning that every single morning, the Father he comes to you and says, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. When Christ becomes your righteousness, even when everything is stripped from you, you can still sing, knowing how much you're loved and accepted and cherished by Christ. With, with Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. Why? It's because on the cross, 
Christ had everything stripped from him. Yet the writer of Hebrews tells us that even then, for the joy that was set before him, you and me, he endured the cross. Even with nails in his hands, nails in his feet, a crown of thorns on his head, and the doors of heaven shut to him, Christ himself, he sang, with you in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. Friends, you are more sinful and flawed than you can ever dare believe, yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you have ever dare hoped or imagined. Let's pray.